castlechurch.org. This is Christ the Center, episode 27. This week we speak with Scott Clark about his forthcoming book, Recovering the Reformed Confession. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and we have an excellent panel here with us today. I want to introduce to you first Nick Batzig, who is interim pastor at Christ the King in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. We also have with us Jeff Waddington, who is ordained as the teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. In addition, we have Jim Cassidy, who is pastor of the congregation at Ringo's, New Jersey. And also our special guest with us today, we have Scott Clark, who is professor of church history and historical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in California. Good morning, guys. Or good afternoon, I should say. Good afternoon. Hey, how you doing there, Camden? Good, good. We're really excited today. We're going to be talking about Dr. Clark's forthcoming book, Recovering the Reformed Confession, which we're really excited about, Jeff especially. I was very interested yeah. in these subjects. Yeah, we were talking beforehand, before we got started, and we're really <laughs> champing at the bit. Sorry too. about that. That's fine. <laughs> but of course, we've got the uh, beloved section, one of... Uh, your favorite, Scott, the, the book section. We want to mention any new books. I did notice a really big title on the Westminster Bookstore. Did anyone else notice that one? Uh, yes, the uh, Defense of the Faith is out, right? Yes, sir. Fourth edition. Uh, it's been uh, edited. I don't know how much the, uh, the text has been changed. I know that the text is actually longer than yes, the last is. volume we had, I think, which was published in the 70s by PNR. But Scott Oliphant has edited and put together this new version of the Defense of the Faith. So should be an excellent addition to your library, especially for all your Vantillians out there or anyone else, for that matter, interested in apologetics. Right. And, the, uh, this edition uh, includes uh, Van Til's interaction, I believe, with uh, men connected with uh, Calvin College and Seminary. Uh, that's why it's longer. Okay. The... Uh, the ex- the exchange between other writers was removed when the book was uh, reprinted now, many, in the seventies. Many of these books started as just course syllab- syllabuses, right, Jeff? Right, Syllabi? that's correct. No. Don't get syllabuses. Jeff started. <laughs> syllabuses. <laughs> A resident Latin scholar here. No, no, no. That's Doctor Clark. Well, yeah. What um, I've never bothered to look it up. Is that, uh, we should is, ask the grammar girls. Anyone else listen? That's a good podcast. Oh, I, she's a. I'm hooked. <laughs> I think she's terrific. Yeah. Uh, so but, we should uh, maybe we should all collectively form an email and ask her. I think I remember one about this very subject. But it's, why don't uh, we it's why don't we interview her for Christ the Center sometime? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> hmm. I, I Actually, I, I learned that from Sinclair Ferguson. He uh, in one of the classes I took with him, Doctrine of God or Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. He corrected us and said it's not syllabi, it's syllabuses. I think, I think for what it's worth, if the word gets used as a regular word in, in the English language, like hippopotamus, you, you're supposed to use the, the English uh, case ending. So it would be syllabuses since we use the word quite often. You wouldn't well, say hippopotami. And you wouldn't say uh, syllabi anyways. It would be syllabi, right, uh, Scott? 
Well, it depends on, on whom you ask. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> One of those. <laughs> anyway, any other books anyway. out there? Um, um, there is a, oh, uh, just uh, one that I saw that it's not out yet. Uh, Joel Beakey's group, um, Reformed Heritage Books, is, is issuing in the fall at some point a Herman Bovink book called Saved by Grace. Oh, okay. Hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, it looks like a fairly uh, substantial book. I, I just got the, the pre-publication text that's sitting on my, my uh, computer desktop, and I, I read the, the introduction by Mark Beach, and uh, that's a terrific piece of work in and of itself. And then, then of course, there, there's Bobbing. So I can't comment on the, the text but I, because I just haven't gotten that far yet. But uh, it's, a, it's, a fine, uh, it's a fine piece of work um, thus far. Of course, we've mentioned before, I believe we mentioned last week, uh, Derek Thomas's little booklet, What is Providence? from PNR. Those are always handy. We'll be speaking with Derek in coming weeks, and we look forward to that. We also mentioned this book by Zach Eswine, Preaching to a Post-Everything World. I did see also uh, Greg Beal has a book coming out. It's certainly not yes. available now. Do you want to mention that one, Jeff? Yes. Uh, what is the, I don't have the, uh, the picture up on the screen, but it's on inerrancy, right? It's yes. uh, The Erosion of Inerrancy in Evangelicalism. Yes. I don't have and a date it, on oh, November. Yeah. Now, it is, uh, it is primarily uh, answering the uh, arguments of Pete Enns. <laughs> mm-hmm. His book, of course, Inspiration and Incarnation, for anyone who hasn't read that one. But uh, he was fairly critical. I, fairly is an understatement. In, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. In uh, the Warfield volume. By Gary Johnson, right? Is he in there? I don't think he's in there. Maybe he's in another one. Oh, you're you're. Are you thinking of the chapter in the Gaffin Festrift? Well, that one as well. No, I believe he wrote. Uh, G.K. Beale wrote uh, an article prior to that. I might be getting my books mixed up, but he wrote one last. Well, last of course, time. he I had it that was ex- a Warfield book, right. but maybe it wasn't. He had an exchange, of course, with uh, Pete Enns. Uh, in uh, the Jets and Thamelios, right, and on Reformation 21. That might be what I'm thinking about. Right, that's right, yeah. Justin uh, Taylor on Between Two Worlds has a post where he has all those reviews lined up. Well, that's, that's helpful. That's helpful. All right. So, yeah, before we move on, he does have, uh, Greg Beale does have another book coming out called Something Like We Are What We Worship. Really? Oh, that sounds uh, it's good. It's an intervarsity title, and, it's, of course, it's on idolatry. Hmm. And, and I just and I just remembered, InterVarsity is coming out beginning in uh, uh, in the fall with at least a multi-volume set on the lectures of Thomas Torrance on on Christ. Yeah, lectures he gave at the uh, in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think between 1958 and whenever he retired, uh, 70s or 80s. And it's at least it's at least two volumes because they're calling this the one that's coming out in the fall, volume one. And it's a hardback, and it's uh, somewhere around between four and five hundred pages, if I remember correctly. Hmm. Uh, I mean, he's he's a, he's like Karl Barth. He's a guy you read to uh, be familiar with what's out there, uh, not because I like him. Sure. Not necessarily for edification. <laughs> right. Well, at least for sharpening. You know, <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, there. Are, in, I I don't know a great deal about about TFT, um, 
but I, I, I uh, and I, and what I know, or what I've read uh, relative to his historical theology, I, I'm pretty critical uh, of it. But um, I do perceive that that there's sort of an earlier and later Torrance, and I, I did profit from uh, a really early work of his on the the doctrine of grace in the Church Fathers. Oh yeah, uh, the done, little done in the forties, and. I'm not a patrologist, but it, that did seem to me to be a, a pretty thoughtful, uh, careful work, and uh, and unlike some of his later work, uh, pretty clear and understandable. I, my biggest problem with Torrance is uh, I'm not sure what he's talking about a good part of the time. So. <laughs> That's true. So, uh, having slogged through much of, much of his work for an independent study course, I can I can uh, confirm that. Evaluation. I I don't know when he became a, a Bardian, but I get the sense that his early, at least early on, he was a sort of run of the mill British, you know, conservative British evangelical, and then had some sort of transformation. But I I, I don't know enough to fill in the the story. I believe in the uh, in the twenties or thirties. I thought it was while he was still in university. Uh, oh, that, that he came in contact with uh, the works of uh, of Bart. I don't, you know who, it's in the biography of Torrance by Alistair McGrath where you yeah. can get all that information. That, no, that's a good, yeah, that's a good lead. I appreciate that. I, I need to read that. Yeah. And then, of course, he, he went um, to Basel and there studied under right. uh, Bart yeah. and uh, right. became, and actually brought Bart uh, back to Scotland and started to introduce him stuff, his stuff to T&T Clark and began to get it published. And uh, once he... Uh, started doing that, he started up the Scottish Journal of Theology, which was going to be really a uh, a podium for uh, for Bart and uh, for Bartian thinking. Yeah, remember at the time that that happened, uh, 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 what we call classical liberalism was the reigning uh, theology, right? So uh, mm-hmm. Bartianism was was the minority voice uh, in in the UK. Uh, yep. I was going to say. Uh, he also Torrance studied under H. R. Macintosh. That name ring a bell, Scott? Sure. Um, uh, uh, he, he, but he hasn't been dead long enough for me to be really interested in. <laughs> uh, check in with him another four hundred years. Yeah, there you go. No, Mac, Macintosh wrote, I believe, on the atonement. I think somewhere in there he, he yeah. wrote something on. He also uh, Torrance was also fascinated with John McLeod Campbell. So, anyways, the, he had some interesting uh, sources to, to to work on Bart Campbell and uh, Macintosh, yeah, among cool. others. Now, anyway. Jim, you are actually at the General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I know this is actually going to air a little bit later, so some people may have already read the reports and heard what they wanted to hear. But would you give us a brief update, just in case? Sure. Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd be happy to. Uh, we we spent a good deal of time, uh, as many of you know, working on the Directory for Public Worship and uh, being in charge of uh, uh, working through it and, and perfecting it. Um, my perception, own personal perception, is that the Committee for Revisions has done, uh, I think, a, a wonderful service to the church, and um, the, uh, the, the the layout is, is wonderful, the theology is sound. Um, so most of the uh, corrections were 
um, that were being offered on the floor uh, were relatively minor, some more substantial. Perhaps the most um, substantial of the debates that we've had is over the expression in the proposed uh, third membership vow, which says, uh, do you uh, abhor and humble yourself? And people wanted to strike out the word abhor. Um, and so the arguments came on the floor uh, that uh, um, uh, proposing all sorts of substitutions, uh, for instance, uh, you know, abhor your sinfulness. Uh, but the sticking point for many was they didn't want to say abhor yourself. And so we're making a distinction between abhorring your sinfulness versus abhorring yourself. And so that debate went on for a, a good period of time. Um, we actually uh, also got a motion on the floor, which was controversial, uh, to uh, recommit uh, the entire uh, the entire report of the committee, uh, actually uh, possibly to a whole new committee, um, one that would uh, go back and basically start from the beginning and uh, with the work that's been done, but with the possibility of, of coming with a bare bones directory and then taking all of the other stuff that was included that they worked so hard on and uh, submitting it to sort of a worship um, manual, uh, maybe at the end of the book of, uh, of church order. Uh, but that one uh, suffered a good deal of time of debate uh, and it actually ended up getting postponed. So, um, uh, that's where it's at now. The consideration of that motion has been postponed, and um, I guess we're supposed to take it back up again tomorrow morning as to whether now, Jim, or not we're going to commit this. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. Jim, isn't that much like how the uh, P PCA's Book of Church Order works? The DPW is not a part of the Constitution. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, the, well, the proposal is the proposal is a little is bit different, except What's for that? the except for the section on the sacraments. Right, okay, that's right. But the rest of it is, uh, what do we call it, pious advice? Uh, I don't even know if they'd call it that. They should. <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be taken up again tomorrow morning, Jim? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting there. Yeah, no, no. The, the, the proposal uh, wouldn't be so much that as, uh, as really uh, uh, you would have a part uh, that is the Constitution, and then you would have a supplement, sort of speak, which may or may not even be included in future copies of the Book of Church Order or editions. So um, uh, that's uh, to be taken up tomorrow morning. Um, but uh, it's it's been some uh, some good hearty debate. Um, a number of other controversial issues uh, that you know controversial. Remember, I'm what I mean by that is just simply there was extended debate um, right. over a particular uh, other particular issues. And um, uh, so it, it it was good. I mean, I, I learned a lot about uh, uh, the Book of Church Order and worship and uh, learned from men who know far more about liturgy and the history of liturgy uh, than, than I know. Uh, so it's been a very stimulating, even if at times uh, very controversial, uh, General hey, Assembly. Hey, Jim, mm -hmm. uh, from the statistics that uh, I think you may have reported uh, – it looks like a very young General Assembly. Is that correct? Relatively? 
Yeah, you, you, you say that. Um, a lot of the older generation, of course, uh, John Galbraith uh, was there from the very beginning with uh, Jay Gresham Machen. He's now in his uh, uh, upper 90s, I suppose, and uh, he used to be a staple attender of the General this Assembly. The, uh, he's, I, I think this is the second one that he has not attended. Yeah, he's uh, he's too frail to, to attend now. Um uh, in, another gentleman, uh, Dick Barker, who is a longtime OP ruling elder, mm -hmm. uh, is often here. Uh, he would be the one that would stand up for one of the uh, ones ordained uh, uh, very early on, and, and uh, he's not here. He's in very frail health. And um, one other item, just to be mentioned for our, um, our listeners um, of concern, was that our state clerk, Don Duff. Uh, yeah. Had to go to the hospital. Um, apparently, he had suffered a, a minor stroke even before he came out here, and uh, mm -hmm. has been uh, was weak. But uh, right now, he's he's resting in the hospital. They're trying to figure out when to um, send him home. But uh, do please uh, uh, have uh, Don Duff uh, in your prayers. Uh, he's well, a, a longtime state clerk of the GA and does a great job. And um, uh, we're we're missing him now. And uh, we hope that he has a full recovery. Yeah, yeah. Now, what we're talking about today, we have Scott Clark on to talk about actually a similar issue a little bit. Actually, one of the chapters in this book, uh, which is entitled Recovering the Reformed Confession, Chapter 6, is Recovering Reformed Worship. So we're right on the similar paths. We're really excited about this. Uh, we've been able to look through uh, a pre-publication version of this book. i, I got to confess, I haven't been able to read much of it, but what I have, I've thoroughly enjoyed. Jeff, you've mentioned the same prior to uh, yeah. our recording, and um, we're really excited uh, to talk about this. Uh, Scott, do you want to explain maybe why we need to recover the Reformed Confession? I'm going to bait you with a question like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a couple of reasons. One, it, it's the um, it's the biblical thing to do. Uh, I was. Um, I, I'm very impressed with the uh, with the fact that uh, people in Scripture are always confessing their faith and and the faith. Um, so that you know the objective history of salvation uh, and and uh, and the teaching of Scripture uh, uh, about uh, creation, uh, the fall, redemption, and consummation. Uh, all through Scripture, people are, are constantly uh, confessing their faith. <clears throat> when I, I teach a course called uh, the Reformed Confessions, and uh, you know, one year we do the Westminster Standards, and uh, one year we do the Three Forms of Unity. Uh, so we cover you know the, what I like to call the Six Forms of Unity. And as a prologue to those uh, lectures and discussions, I, I survey the biblical teaching uh, or, or the biblical practice of confessing the faith, and you start with uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 with the Shema, and, and, and you work your way through Scripture, and it's just a basic um, function of being in the people of God to confess the faith. Uh, uh, one of my favorites is a passage that I, I don't know that it receives as much attention as it should. I like the way that it's uh, laid out on the page in the ESV of 1 Timothy uh, 3.16. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. 
Uh, now that, that strikes me clearly as a confessional formula. And, and so, um, so that's the first thing. It's a, it's a biblical uh, thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. And because we're sinful, we always forget things and, or neglect things or corrupt things. And so we have to come back to it all the time. Um, it's obviously, uh, or at least I, as I understand things, it's the Reformed thing to do. Uh, it, it's what we do. Uh, we have, since the very beginning of the Reformation, confessed our faith. Um, depending on, on what documents you count, um, if you if you count just the sort of major reform confessions in the 16th and 17th centuries, you, you're looking at about 25 documents. If you count all the minor documents, uh, it, it adds to a rather larger number. But the the result is that through the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, we were confessing our faith on a regular basis, um, and. I think because it's been so long since the Orthodox confessional churches have written a confession, uh, I think we've we've forgotten that. We don't have that consciousness. You know, for us, a confession, for most of us anyway, a confession is something that was done a long time ago and mm-hmm. uh, far away and is sort of remote and archaic. Uh, and yet, in the 16th and 17th centuries, it wasn't that way at all. These were uh, relatively contemporary documents. Um, and, and so I, when I talk about recovering the Reformed Confession, uh, I mean recovering the practice of confessing, uh, but I also mean recovering the substance of, of what we confess uh, and the practice of what we uh, what, that we confess in those documents. And then I, and I guess it's cheating a little bit, but at least I, I'm honest about it. Um, I, I equivocate a little bit on the word uh, confession, or I use it in two senses. There's also a broader sense in which I want to include the, uh, the the Reformed tradition as it has confessed the faith before us and with whom we are confessing the faith. Part of recovering a Reformed confession is, is to recover um, the way they confess the faith and, and, um, and to learn from them as we, as we confess the faith. The, the reason I wrote the book uh, was because I, I, it's become clear to me that, um, and I think to a lot of other people, that even though uh, in in our circles, and I, here I'm thinking of the sort of NAPARC world, the uh, North American Presbyterian and, and Reformed Council, mm-hmm. uh, roughly five or maybe 600,000 uh, people uh, in our world, um, we think of ourselves as uh, conservatives, and we think of ourselves as predestinarian, and we think of ourselves as reformed. But uh, I'm not sure, really, that we are as reformed as we like to think that we are. Uh, and I don't. And I think if we just ask some some diagnostic questions, uh, that becomes uh, evident pretty quickly. The one test case, uh, sort of thought experiment that I use in the book, I say. Uh, you know, pack up and go to a new town where there are, you know, where there's more than one Reformed church, which, by the way, is not always an easy thing to do, That's particularly nice. if you're if you're between the coasts. Um, right. Uh, it's not always easy, or if you're away from Grand Rapids or Philadelphia. <laughs> but, yeah. um, so let's say you go into a town where there are, you know, multiple Reformed churches. Um, well, which one are you going to go to? Uh, so you go, you, you begin visiting around to see about the different churches. And, you know, one will be theonomic, one will be neo-Puritan, you know, one will be uh, uh, confessional, and, and one will be, uh, uh, let's say, uh, 
progressive uh, contemporary or something. Well, of that group, um, it's not unusual to have one of them self-identify as confessional and the others not really self-identify as confessional. Uh, in other words, we accept the distinction that you can be reformed and not confessional. That's right. Um, right we have. I think that's bizarre. Um, yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I mean, I think if we if we think about that for a while, we'll begin to see the incongruity of thinking of ourselves as reformed, but but not really oriented to the confession. And so that raises the question of of um, you know, who gets to define what reformed is, or how do we define the adjective reformed? And, um, you know, there's been this huge discussion for probably 25 years or more, what's an evangelical? I think it's time for us to have a serious discussion in our own circles, uh, what's reformed? Um, and we can get at that in a lot of ways. One way is to um, is to enter into a discussion with these, uh, now I guess I can say young fellows, um, uh, writing for Christianity Today, um, Colin Hansen and, and some of these guys who are, you know, young, restless, and reformed, and we could ask, well, okay, that's great. Uh, do you are you attending the OPC, the PCA, the URC, the RPCNA, or which NAPARC church are you attending? Oh, we're not attending a NAPARC church. Really? Okay. Why do you call yourself reformed? Well, we believe in predestination. Well, good. So did Thomas Aquinas. Mm, um, right. I mean, and and so and so did uh, a lot of folks. I don't think we want to define reform that way. So those are those are some of the questions that animated the book. And you know, I think it's interesting that even this discussion is going on within Baptist circles, where you have some holding to the London Baptist Confession. Um, and really asking these same questions, while we would, you know, disagree and say to be really reformed, you would be fully covenantal. Um, they still see this need for confession and confessional standards. Uh, I've had that discussion. Um, we host uh, on campus here at Westminster Seminary, California, um, uh, the Institute for Reformed Baptist Studies. It's a separate entity. Uh, they they use our facilities, and, and we. We transfer credits and so forth, and we have a good relation with them. But I have raised the question, and we're, it's very cordial and, and uh, friendly. Uh, Jim Renahan is a terrific guy. If I were going to be a Baptist, it would I'd be a, a Jim Renahan uh, Arbka Baptist. But um, then I'd have to turn my back on on Father Abraham. Uh, uh, so <laughs> the um, the question is. Uh, um, and I, I've had this discussion with lots of uh, folks who, who self-identify as Reformed Baptists. Um, who gets to define Reformed? I mean, uh, the Reformed faith, and it, it, I guess this raises a more fundamental question, is is there a fixed content to the adjective Reformed? Or is it a fluid, shifting um, uh, term? And obviously, adjectives change in their, in their meaning, but... Yeah. It seems to me it's not a happy thing if we don't fix the, the meaning. And, of course, this is an ancient question. Do yeah. we call a thing what we call it because it is what it is? Or is there no necessary relationship between the name and the and the thing? Um, and I want to say, no, there's a real relationship between the name and the thing. Um, so that if you ask our forefathers, if you ask the, the uh, delegates to the Synod of Dort, if you ask the uh, the uh, 
folks who drafted the Heidelberg Catechism, if you ask the, the divines uh, in the Jerusalem chamber, uh, the Westminster Assembly, can you deny, for example, uh, baptism to covenant children and, and, and call yourself reformed? I think we all know the answer. Uh, and, uh, and I think uh, at the end of the day, um, I, I, as I say, and I've said in public, I'm, it's not for me to tell Baptists what they should call themselves, but uh, I, I can't see how looking at my children and telling them that they're not baptized, um, uh, how can someone do that and then say, but we're all reformed? Mm-hmm. Right. That, right. That makes no sense to me. Right. You set some labels out at the beginning I thought were very interesting. You set out the mainline branch of Reformed and Presbyterian churches, and their borderline, and then the sideline. And you put you placed, I believe, the Napark churches in the sideline. But what you've already mentioned here is that this term is, is so slippery. Well, think about it. What's the, uh, the paradigm example of that problem is Roger Olson's book. What is it, Reformed and Always Reforming? Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, there there is a classical. Ex- now, the problem also exists within our own circle, uh, and I wanted something I wanted to ask in a moment. But you, there, you've got Roger Olson's book, right? And yes. uh, of course, uh, uh, Grenz and Frankie, or Frankie, would be in that same category. You know, the the term the term is now become a wax nose in the broader, uh, in at least in the emerging church or in the post conservative church. We've, we've got to nail it down, if you will. And a question now, about that. You, you, yeah. you know, a lot of times people, uh, a current popular move will be to historicize the confession. This goes along with what you've already mentioned. But they want to say, yes, I subscribe. But basically some people, what they might mean is they subscribe to the fact that the confession was a good thing at the time it was adopted. Yeah. Uh, and and they you know that that the confession doesn't answer the questions that need to be answered now or now that we're in a postmodern world uh, with a different view of epistemology that sort of thing uh, we need to take the trajectories of the confession but move beyond the confession. Well, um, if you're asking me, I think there are a couple of questions there. One, I think that we have to resist the first move, and and that is to um, to make the document. Purely historical. Of course, the document is historical. The document, whether we're thinking of the Westminster or or the Heidelberg or the Belgic uh, or the Canons, um, those documents all occurred in given times and places, and they occurred you know out of specific circumstances in response to certain external stimuli and and internal uh, theological stimuli. So. Uh, no one can sensibly deny that, uh, and we have to read those documents in that context. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, I think we also have to say that we're still confessing those things. Um, the the Westminster, uh, and, and by the way, as a faculty member at Westminster, California, I confess all six documents. So I, I have a, uh, as, an, as a um, teacher, I have a relationship to all six, and as a minister, I'm specifically... Uh, Obligated to the three forms, um, the Belgic, the Heidelberg, and the, and the, and, uh, the canons. But mm-hmm. the, these are still our confessions. Uh, we're actively uh, confessing these things still. And so we also, I think, have to resist the move of the mainline. And you can see this in the discussion surrounding the Confession of 67, where the older documents were relegated to, as you, I think, I'm not sure it was Camden, but I suggested that. Um, 
in a sense, uh, people take a Schleiermachian approach to, to the documents to say, well, that reflected their religious experience then, but it doesn't really refl- reflect our religious experience uh, today. And uh, at that point, you're simply not um, – well, in a sense, you're dealing honestly, as long as you say that, and then I think you should just dispense with the older documents. Um, but um, What we have operating here is we have different groups who subscribe and use the confessions, uh, various confessions, as their founding document, as their organizing principle. But then, of course, on top of Scripture, then you have people who are understanding what it means to, be, to subscribe in different ways, some right. using the, those Schleiermachian-type moves and then others not. And that's where we, we, we encounter a rub. One thing that goes along with that, or I was really interested in, uh, you talked about Jigresa Machen and uh, his particular approach that he adopted, that he rejected the idea that the Reformed confessions are an obstacle to doctrinal progress. And one thing that a lot of the, the people who do the Schleiermachian move might say is that it hinders theological creativity. Now, I guess my question for you, Scott, is, does it hinder creativity? And if so, is that a good or a bad thing? Well, I, you know, I think that's an interesting thing to claim. Um, I, I, I don't think the 16th and century, 16th and 17th century uh, folks would agree with that at all. Uh, those are periods of remarkable theological creativity. And, and yet they sat down in conference with one another and they worked out consensus documents. Uh, and by the way, these are, these are, are not just theological documents. Uh, these aren't mini systematics. These are ecclesiastical documents meant to act as charters and and sort of sorts of uh, covenants uh, within the churches. So these things are uh, are public uh, d- uh, documents, and, and yet they were drafted in a time of tremendous creativity. You know, in, in the period, say, if you start with the earliest from the 1520s uh, through through 1647. Uh, no one would call that a, a time of um, of anything, I think, but but creativity. So no, uh, I don't see how anyone can say that. I think the problem is uh, who gets to define what counts as creative. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, of course, if you're in the main line, um, <laughs> creative looks one way. Uh, we get to redefine what the Word of God is. What we the, get to what redefine we call God, what His names are. We get to re- exactly. You know. Or whatever the question happens to be, uh, I think those of us uh, I, who I think will, at least are um, ostensibly committed to the, the historic documents and, and the substance of what they confess, um, you know, we want to deal uh, a little differently with these things. And, and one of the things, I, one of the arguments that I pursue in the book is that um, uh, I think it's uh, well past time for us to, to begin confessing our faith again. Um, I'm not very persuaded by the arguments against new confessions. Uh, we can't do it. This isn't a confession writing age. Um, yeah, that's John I, I think, Frame's comments, right? I think those kinds of arguments betray again or reveal a lack of understanding of what happened in the 16th and 17th centuries. Guy Debray, and uh, for just to take one example, wrote the Belgian Confession while he was hiding from Spanish troops. Um, uh, if you know... Uh, anything about the training these fellows received, some of them were reasonably well-trained, but many of them had less theological training than than uh, most of our ministers today. Now, they, to be fair, they had a better liberal arts background than most of us have today. But in terms of technical 
training and length of time in school and those sorts of things, uh, we have some advantages. Uh, so, you know, Guy Debray was hiding from Spanish troops, uh, riding the Belgic while he was sitting in hedgerows, uh, you know, watching helmeted soldiers walk by. Um, I can't see how we're completely incapable of, you know, matching a guy who's who's hiding in the bushes. Scott, I, I, I really wanted to ask what I think is the big question for a lot of my friends and a lot of people I talk with. And that has to do with the, the variance um, in the theological beliefs of the men at Westminster and at these other councils and where they wrote these confessions. And, you know, Chad Van Dixhorn pointed out a few years ago the issue with twists and vines. And there was another man at the assembly who, Gattiger. you know, di- Gadiger, who didn't like the language of uh, the act of imputed righteousness um, of Christ. And yet, we in our denominations have made these documents that you know these men have come together and written the standard or the test of orthodoxy. And so the question, as you know, a lot of the Federal Vision men and others have raised are, well, but these men had different differences among themselves. So sure. where do you draw the line with uh, individual ministers having differences – um, what is the test of orthodoxy? If we're not saying the confession is the essential doctrine, is the essentials of the Christian religion, how do we well, define that now? Well, I mean, yeah, you raised several questions. Um, the, the first question, I think, is you know, how do we relate to the document? And I argue in the book that, um, uh, that the, um, th- there are two fundamental ways of, of signing these documents. Uh, one is uh, uh, one um, the older way, and I think the best way of signing a document is uh, is uh, summarized in the um, the preposition quia uh, because it's a it's a Latin word. So we do something because of something else. So in this case, we would be signing the document because it's biblical. And the second way of approaching these is to use the Latin word quatenus or insofar as, and subsequent. Um, to the, we'll say the late 16th century, uh, early certainly by the early, uh, excuse me, uh, late 17th century, early 18th century, uh, people began to shift the way they related to these documents, um, so that more and more the the Quatenus view became the predominant view. That is, right. we subscribe them insofar as they are biblical. Well, the minute you say insofar as, you raise the question whether everything in the confession is biblical and or perhaps there are things that are uh, either indifferent or, or, or even unbiblical in the document. And uh, it seems to me we couldn't um, operate on any other, uh, with any other document. Try signing your mortgage. I'm signing this mortgage uh, insofar as I agree with it. That's good. And the, the bank will come and repossess your house insofar as you don't make the payment. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I... I mean, I understand why we are where we are at this moment, uh, you know, in the Quia Quatenus discussion. But um, all of the discussions that we've had in the last 25 or 30 years over, um, you know, good faith, full subscription, system subscription, and of course, some of these go back to Princeton, and I, I, I give a, I think, a fairly full account of all of that uh, in, um, in uh, they renamed the chapters. In, I think it's chapter five. Um, it's either four or five. I think it's five, um, uh, and I go through the history of subscription, and I, may, I try to make a case for uh, going, 
going back to some form of Korea subscription um, so that we all know how we're relating to the document and we and um, and we need some document to which we can actually relate without taking uh, exceptions. Now that being said, um, anyone who dissents from and, and my understanding of these documents is that they are uh, we're not simply signing the, the system contained within the document, but that the document is itself the system. And was right. these documents were intended right. to survey the system of the teaching of Scripture, and to be a, an ecclesiastical summary of that. Uh, so when we sign these things, uh, we're entering into a, a relationship with them. Uh, I, I think for for that reason that the good faith approach. Um, I, I, I'm, it'll be interesting to see how it works out, but but the history of subscription suggests that the good faith approach will not hold for very long. Um, well, yeah, because no one's defined essential doctrine. So they say, we'll accept a man with an, with an exception on good faith that he won't teach against essential doctrine. Or that then strikes at the vitals of religion. or Right, right but yeah. then no one defines that. Well, those things have to be judged on, an, on a presbyterial, as I understand it, have to be judged on a presbyterial basis. Um, right. And, and historically, um, I think that approach has, has not been terribly satisfactory in, in the long run. It's a, it's a holding uh, pattern, I, I suppose. Um, so uh, I think we need to continue to, to believe the substance of what we confess. Relative, for example, to the federal vision, um, I am quite confident that those fellows are simply not dealing squarely with what we confess on uh, uh, on the covenant, the covenant of grace and the covenant of works, and, and implicitly, I think, the covenant of redemption, and certainly not with uh, justification. We tried to make that case in uh, covenant justification and pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our confession is is really not that complicated. Uh, for example, Westminster Confession eleven two defines faith in the act of justification. Faith, yes. comma, thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness, comma. So you've defined it now. How does faith function in justification? Oh, well, there are two uh, participles. Receiving and resting, that's oh, yes. it. Relative to justification, that's all that that's all that we confess that faith does is it receives and rests on Christ and His righteousness. And what is it? It's the alone justament, uh, instrument of justification. Uh, and we go on to say, yes, it's it's not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces. Right. Um, but it doesn't justify because it has those saving graces. Uh, those saving graces don't make it uh, uh, justifying, and that's why they quote, you know, Galatians uh, five uh, works worketh by love to say we reject the Roman interpretation implicitly uh, of Galatians five and faith formed by love and all of that. So our confession is pretty clear on this stuff, and so it really comes down to whether people are dealing honestly with these documents. Yeah, there, there was a diversity of, of opinion. On, for example, imputation of active obedience. But if you look at the the way the confession uh, speaks about the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness, um, I frankly don't think that the that Gattaker, Twist, and Vines really got much out of the assembly. Right. What they got was uh, they got the assembly to drop the I think the adjective whole. Um, right. And so in place, what do we have? Perfect. Uh, <laughs> right. Fine, I'll, I'll take that phrase. Pretty much, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Do you think this, the the problem with uh, folks in the church being uh, 
being familiar with our our confession. Uh, the problem is that, for instance, uh, now I, I think in the URC you require your lay people to also subscribe. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, that's not the case in the Presbyterian, uh, at least not in the OPC or the PCA. Correct. So there is oh, right away you have a, a difference between the officers and the laity, yeah. and uh, that sets up the potential for the laity uh, not understanding what it means to be reformed in the confessional, yeah. in the full, full, full orb confessional sense. I, I do worry. Be. I do worry about um, there being sort of two tiers of members, and I've had this discussion with with uh, Presbyterian brothers, and I've I've uh, you know had lo- long term relationships with OP congregations and preached in lots of different congregations. So um, I, I try not to be too insular, but uh, I do worry about the effect of having a two tier. Uh, set of uh, requirements. So you have members and then you have officers and uh, of course officers come from the laity and so then they have to have, they have to be specially trained, which of course is a good thing in any event, but but um, you end up then with a session that is, you know, we hope uh, confessionally reformed and then membership that is potentially all over the map, some bounded, at least we, we think by the Apostles' Creed. Uh, but that's a. It strikes me personally as a fairly minimal standard uh, for membership. Now, I I must say, you know, as an associate pastor of a URC congregation, I do see the difficulty of asking people when they come in to you know when they unite with a congregation to uh, to affirm everything that's in the three forms of unity. It does sometimes make for uh, a fairly lengthy membership class, mm-hmm. uh, and yet. We have found over the years that it's been a, a very healthy discussion with people. Um, they need that kind of basic Christian instruction, um, and it does it, it does give us a way to say to people, "Listen, you know, this is what we believe. This is what you believe. This is what you've said that you believe," and um, it allows us to relate to people on a common on a common basis. Right. And I, again, if we go back to the 16th and 17th century as a as a pattern. Surely there was a, a time of development, but from the earliest days in the Reformed churches, children were catechized in, and of course they are in Presbyterian churches, but the assumption was you were going to know this stuff and believe this stuff as a condition of being a, a, a part of this congregation. Uh, I think however we approach this formally, in practice we can certainly recover all of that. This, uh, it seems to me, though, that uh, what happens is that uh, the confessions and becomes a hobby for officers uh, and not of much consequence to the average person in the pew. Yeah, that um, it's real easy. It's quite easy to make uh, confessional orthodoxy theoretical. And, and I think that's what people really mean when they talk about dead orthodoxy. Uh, there are a variety yeah. of ways of, of making orthodoxy somewhat irrelevant. Um, one is to turn to what I call the quest for illegitimate religious experience, mm-hmm. you know, the immediate encounter with the risen Christ without without the gospel uh, preached, or without the sacraments, without the covenant community. Um, and the other, of course, is to what I call the quest for illegitimate religious certainty um, or some form of rationalism where one's uh, intellect intersects with, with the divine intellect 
you know, we know what God knows the way he knows it. Um, those two things, uh, I think, uh, both have a, a way, ironically, of marginalizing uh, what we confess. Um, I think in our time, it, uh, the, the quest for religious experience, the illegitimate quest for religious experience, is a bigger problem. Um, as long as people have the right kind of religious experience, we won't query them too much about what they actually believe or what, they, what they're teaching their children at home, for example. Mm. Now, Scott, I have a question uh, that may that that has uh, been one that I've muddled over, or, or you know, thought about in re- reading uh, some of of your work and this book, but also uh, someone that I think you respect very highly, and that is Daryl Hart. Uh, there's do a, I have to admit? Do I have to admit <laughs> that in public? <laughs> it's okay to do so. It's okay. All right. Well, just as so long as we know that I, I don't wear fuchsia sweaters, and Daryl does. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, okay. Now, the, the, it's just this. Uh, the, the stress, for instance, on, on uh, or the differentiation between uh, a proper understanding of nurturing uh, the young people, for instance, in the faith by catechizing, that's often uh, pitted against... Uh, revivalism, and it, it appears to some of to me that sometimes that could be read to suggest that uh, you have a choice between evangelism and catechism, as if the two <laughs> could, couldn't both be done. In other words, sure. uh, in other words, that it, it's sometimes Daryl, and and sometimes uh, my impression, I'm, I, and you probably don't mean this, and it'll be good to clarify this, that. Uh, that uh, we're never to the the church is never to take the gospel to the unbelieving world. We're only to be concerned with the 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 uh, people that are already in the in the church. Yeah, no. that's a good question, and, and that's a fair question. And, and the way to answer it is to query the the premise, the implied premise, that revivalism equals evangelism. And, right. And that's a fundamental premise that has to be not only queried but I think rejected. Um, I, I'm. Uh, as a as a diehard uh, dead orthodox confessionalist, um, I am uh, deeply interested in, in evangelism. Uh, but the question is, how do we define evangelism, and and who gets to do it? And uh, the way I like to talk about it with our congregation is to say that um, the, on Sunday mornings, when the minister is in the pulpit and he's preaching the gospel, properly speaking, that is evangelism. Now, right. you say, well, what about the laity? Well, what about the laity? Um, are they actually commissioned in Scripture to do, strictly speaking now, to do evangelism? And I, I think that's a very difficult case. Um, I, I'm not at all convinced by the appeals to uh, Acts 8 or many of the other appeals that people make to Scripture, because they typically aren't really very good biblical exegesis, it seems to me. Uh, does that mean that that uh, laity ought not to be talking about their faith? Well, no, they they certainly should. Uh, I think laity need to be uh, praying for opportunities to give witness to to uh, the faith that is, you know, as we said before, the right. objective facts uh, of redemptive history and the application of it and so forth. Uh, so the faith uh, and their faith, their personal appropriation of uh, Christ and His righteousness. 
they need to pray uh, and uh, and then be ready to take advantage of those uh, opportunities uh, when they come. So, do we have to set confession uh, and catechism against evangelism? Well, no, not at all. Mm-hmm. What are, what are people going to do when they talk with their friends and neighbors? Well, they're going to talk about the faith. Well, what faith? Exactly. Well, the faith that we can right. Faith okay, that we can yes, all right. That that basically gets at the uh, the concern that I had uh, was that. Uh, Sometimes it can be unheard. What's heard is that uh, nobody nobody's expected to when when opportunity arises. Nobody's expected to tell anybody else, a workmate, a classmate, whatever, uh, about Christ. Yeah, that, and I, I don't mean I, I don't think one has to af- assume uh, revival a revivalistic approach. It's just the the idea that uh, I still wrestle with the idea that um, I- I'm fine with saying that corporate worship and the proclamation of the word by the minister is the primary means of evangelism, but I'm not sure I'm there yet with saying it's the only means. Well, sure, and then now we're just uh, defining words. If you want to just, dis- you know, I- I- it's fine with me if we want to say uh, evangelism broadly considered is one thing evangelism narrowly considered is another. I, I do think it's helpful to make some distinction between what officers do and what laity do. Oh, I agree uh, with that. Right. Okay, that, that I so, absolutely... So as long as we're making that distinction, and I and that's my only point in distinguishing between evangelism and witness, um, I think we have to... Peop, I think God's people, by virtue of being Christians, have to be uh, able to give witness. The, the passage I like to go to in this regard is John 9... Um, and if you ask the congregation, you know, they'll tell you that, well, you know, whenever he talks about evangelism, Clark is always talking about John 9. Well, why? Well, it's because it's a great example of lay witness. Uh, this guy has no training. Uh, uh, he's uh, His only qualification for talking about the faith is that he was born blind and that right. he was healed. Um, and, of course, John clearly juxtaposes his that is the man who was born blind, his relatively faithful witness, uh, they ask him questions, he tells the truth, right? And uh, he even begins to query the the, the uh, investigators to say, well, if you're so interested in, in Jesus, <laughs> why don't you ask him? <laughs> yeah, right. want to believe in him too. Yeah. And it's a great, I love this passage. And then, of course, you have the contrast with his parents who know the truth mm. and who refuse to tell the truth. And right. I, I'm confident that as John writes this to whatever congregation to which he wrote it, implicit in this is a message to the congregation. Listen, in this story, we're to identify with a man born blind, and we're not to be like the parents. Uh, I'm not asking right. much here, but I am asking you to tell the truth about Jesus. Um, and well, I think see, that's, people, that's fine. That And so you make a distinction between evangelism and witness. Yeah. But you uh, would... You would want to say, though, that witness is is actually not about our personal experience, right? Because a lot of times uh, people, they think uh, they confuse the gospel with their personal experience. Well, I, I try to make a distinction between witness to the faith, uh, what actually happened in objective history, and, and to our faith, that is my personal appropriation of it. And I think it's certainly good for Christians to be able to testify to both things. Hmm. Um, this is 
this is what happened in redemptive history. God the Son uh, was incarnate, you know, of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, uh, was uh, ascended, uh, raised, ascended, and so forth, and, and is ruling at the right hand. Um, they should be able to testify to all those things, but also say, and I believe it. It's uh, it's not just right. uh, facts on a page. Yeah. But I've entered into a personal relationship with these truths, uh, and and so should you. So you've, Scott, you've actually you've touched – I'm sorry, Nick. Go ahead. Well, I was going to take the discussion a little bit different direction. Um, That's okay. I, I thought it was interesting that you talked about the Sabbath in your book and the contrast between the continental view of the Sabbath and the Puritan – Westminster view and you know I hear a lot of people say well I have more of a continental view as if it's just dramatically different and you don't <laughs> ever hear anybody define it I thought it was very interesting that you talk about it not being that different and setting it in a historical context could you just briefly talk about that I, I'm happy to talk about it uh, just by way of context my own views have metamorphosed pretty considerably over 25 or so years, um, and, and I've come to see from a historical point of view that the, the distinction that people often make really isn't very well grounded in history. If you ask, for example, the Heidelberg reformers, how, how should we think about the Sabbath, the answer that they will give in substance, if we read it carefully, in context, is virtually identical to the answer that you get from the English reform. I think also that we have a problem in that we tend to, and I'm not criticizing you, Nick, for using it this way, but we tend to speak of the Puritans as if they were this utterly distinct group with you know, peculiar views on Sabbath and worship. Mm. Uh, and increasingly, um, I simply want to say, and I say to the students, the word Puritan, the adjective Puritan is so complicated and, mm. and applies to so many different kinds of people. I, I think it's just more helpful to speak of the English Reformed or the British Reformed Scottish Reformed, whatever we want to use, however precise we want to be, yes. um, and, and then the European Reformed or, or the French or the Dutch, or, or, or how, rather than making a, a distinction between the English and the Europeans as if the Europeans uh, constituted or the, the, the English constituted some absolutely peculiar subgroup with you know, bizarre views. The, the reason I say this is because the 16th and 17th century uh, Christians, uh, Reformed folk, um, weren't conscious of the distinction the way that we have become conscious of it. Yes, the word Puritan was used, and um, and they were aware of it, but there were analogous terms being used in European Reformed churches as well. Uh, and so, for example, in my book on um, Olivianus, uh, Substance of the Covenant, the Double Benefit of Christ, I argue at the end that Olivianus really represents everything that the... Um, for example, the Bardians hate, uh, or that Moltmann hates. It's it's the same sort of English Puritan ethical precisionist. Maybe that's a little overstated, but uh, uh, you know, ethical Puritanism, uh, regulative principle Puritanism, Sabbath keeping Puritanism. Right. Uh, you know, covenantal uh, federal theology. You know, people want to juxtapose covenant and uh, covenant theology and federal theology. It's he's got all the stuff that people say they hate. Uh, so what are we talking about here? Well, he's a German Puritan, if we're going to – so all that's prefaced to say that I don't see any huge difference between the European Reformed and the English or Scottish Reformed. 
on the Puritan or on the Sabbath in the 16th and 17th centuries. Like a lot of doctrines, like covenant theology and other doctrines, it did develop, it did mature. Uh, worship certainly uh, developed and matured. But the fundamental lines of Reformed theology of the Sabbath and practice of the Sabbath are established pretty early. It's a, it's a creational institution. It's a redemptive institution. It's a day of rest, of renewal, worship, and anticipation of consummation. And that's true whether you're talking about the 1540s or the 1640s uh, or even the 1740s. Um, one, one thing that, um, that comes up naturally and you address in the book when we talk about Sabbath is Reformed worship. Uh, and the last chapter really caught my eye because it's called the big night, whatever happened to the second service. And when I talk to people, uh, you know, family members or friends, and uh, I tell them, well, I've got to, you know, I might talk to my family or, or somebody on Sunday just to, to get back in touch with them. And I say, well, i got to get going to church. They go, oh, you're going to church again? Yeah, yeah, we have an <laughs> evening service. And then and then it, it's, oh, well, well, didn't he already preach that sermon? Doesn't he preach the same? No, no, it's a completely different sermon, and it's a full regular <laughs> worship service. It's so foreign. Uh, to so many people, um, and it's so odd to to suggest uh, that the pastor would be responsible for developing two new original sermons and preach them both on Sunday. Well, the tragedy is it's becoming uh, foreign, not just to our unchurched neighbors, but within within Nay Park yeah. world, within the confessional yeah. reformed yeah. world. That's uh, sad. That's what I'm talking I, about. <laughs> the beam, yeah. I, I'm troubled by the fact that when I travel— and when I'm away on the Sabbath, it is frequently the case that I can't find an evening service. It's not that I can't find an evening service that I don't, you know, maybe wouldn't care for. Yeah. It's that I can't find an evening service. Um, and I find myself sometimes in mainline Lutheran congregations with Vespers, you know, a Vespers service with some cat in a robe and sandals and doing who knows what. Um you know, just to be in a in a service, uh, you know, a word and sacrament service on, on the Sabbath evening, um, I, I don't. I frankly don't understand that, and I, I think it's rooted ultimately in two things: one, we just don't see the point anymore, and two, we don't have time because we've lost our our notion of the Sabbath. Um, to, to regain to to recover the Reformed confession on worship, we need to pay attention to what we confess and why that. It's through, as the Westminster says, the due use of ordinary means that God works. You know, we wonder why our children don't, you know, uh, for example, one of the great crises that we've had probably forever, but certainly in the modern period is why don't our children go to church after we after they leave the house? Well, maybe it's because we raised them not to go to church. Right. Uh, maybe it's because we didn't catechize them. Maybe it's because we made... Uh, the Sabbath of no consequence. I, I think it may be other reasons too, but certainly those are some of the reasons. Mm. Uh, and uh, we don't really believe anymore that God has promised to operate through the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments to bring his people to faith and to confirm them in that faith. Uh, and we've got so much shopping to do, we can't do it in six days. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I mean, even even uh, it's so so foreign to close down on Sunday anymore. Whereas uh, in uh, years past, that would have it would have been much more even culturally 
uh, oh, easier I, to, to, to rest on Sabbath. And, and I don't care what people do within reason between sure. the services, so long as they're at the services. Hmm. I mean, and what I say to, the, to our congregation is, it's the preaching of the Word of God. And, um, you know, what else have you got to do? It's the Sabbath, and it's a stated service. And frankly, that's all people really need to know. Now, sometimes people respond to me and they say, well, can we have three services? And, and then I say, well, um, they, they did, actually. Um, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, the Westminster, again, helps us when it talks about uh, circumstances and, um, and, and paying attention to creation relative to circumstances. Most Reformed churches today are commuter churches. And so, and that's a, I'm particularly aware of it out here. Uh, I commute to church. I, I know Jeff commutes uh, a ridiculous distance to church, and uh, a lot a lot of Reformed people do that. Uh, it's not uncommon out here for people to commute uh, 45 minutes to an hour one way. Um, so that does raise real practical problems, and, and I think we have a moral responsibility to love one another as we make plans for services. But in principle, if we lived in a small village of you know five, ten, or twenty thousand people, sure, theoretically you could have three services. But uh, certainly, the pattern of having morning service and then a second service at some point, whether afternoon or evening, uh, you know, opening the day and and in some sense closing the day with the people of God, I think is essential to reform piety. And if there's one thing that I found that really encouraged me is that this has always been a struggle. This was a struggle in the 16th century. Exactly. It was, yeah. a, it was a struggle in the 17th century and 18th century. It's always been a struggle. So much so that the, the Senate of Dort said to the ministers, listen, we're going to have evening services, and we're going to have them even if the minister and his family are the only ones to show up. And, you know, maybe I'm perverse, but I love that. Mm. I just think that's fantastic because that's, you know, there you have people saying, we recognize it's tough, but this is what we believe is right, and we're going to do it. Mm. And, and we're going to do what's right. We're going to trust the Lord and wait for the Lord to, to bless uh, doing the right thing rather than saying, oh, well, nobody's coming. Let's have home groups. Mm. Uh, well, home groups are, are great, and you've got six days to have home groups, but they're not the means of grace. Mm. Right. One thing Carl Truman had had mentioned uh, to me in, in passing, I heard him say, is uh, as reformed Watch people, out. if we, yeah, as reformed people, if we really believe that that what the the pastor, the the minister is saying, truly are the words of Christ, why wouldn't you want to hear them twice on Sunday? Well, right. Exactly. Or if we really believe, and this is a, I don't do much, I don't do a lot with this in the book, but if we really believe that that. You know, when we come to the Lord's table, and in our congregation we come forward, and the minister actually hands to us, you know, he's holding a tray, and, and he's handing us bread and wine. And if, if we really believe that we are eating by faith, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, in a way that's impossible to explain fully, the body and blood of Christ, and that he's feeding us, Christ himself is feeding us with nothing other than, as the Belgian Confession says, the proper and natural body and blood of Christ— would, what what else do you have to do on Sunday morning? Well, mm-hmm. let's see. I could play golf or I could eat the body of Christ. Hmm, exactly. that's a tough choice. If, right. if you're, if you're, sometimes if you're having, we just need to be, put things in perspective. If I you're mean, having that kind of a crisis, then I think you know probably what we need to talk about is whether a person really believes. Yeah. Right. 
I, I wanted to ask what practical thoughts you have on implementing confessional and catechetical teaching in the church. Do you, are you, since you're in a Dutch denomination now, are you in favor of catechetical preaching? What are your thoughts just briefly? Yeah, I, again, this is not something with which I was intimately familiar. I was in the German Reform for denomination, the RCUS, for 18 years, and evening services are, are a little spotty and, and – um, there isn't, there, at least there hasn't been in the modern period, a strong tradition of evening services or, or catechism preaching. And so it was through um, Bob Godfrey and, and my contacts here in the URC that have sort of introduced me to this. And so as I researched this, I found again that this, this was a historic reform practice that isn't just a Dutch practice. It's a Genevan practice. Uh, it, it's a practice that's occurred all through the reform tradition, uh, wherever it has been. Um, I have found it particularly beneficial. Uh, I uh, I think it's extremely useful on a practical basis for ministers to, to preach, you know, their their exegetical sermon in the morning, and not to say that the second sermon shouldn't be exegetical, but but that uh, to allow some, in some way the the catechism uh, to structure the evening sermon. And if you if you look at the Heidelberg Catechism, every one of those answers is essentially three points. So, you, you know, whether and, – and some of our churches in the past actually preached the text of the catechism. I realize people have scruples about that, and so fine. Preach, a, a, you know, a passage of scripture that at least relates to one of the points, or, or I have been known to preach, you know, a, a topical sermon structured by the catechism uh, and used, you know, three different texts. There's a variety of ways of doing this. Um, I mean, obviously, I think our, our sermons always have to be exegetical. They have to be biblical. Uh, yes. A minister is preaching the Word of God. Um, he ought to be working in the original languages in, in any sermon. But I also think we have to be, you know, sometimes we get a little um, highfalutin about method, homiletical method, as if, you know, the Volbadian, uh, not, not that anyone says this, but, the, you know, the Volbadian reconstructive method dropped out of heaven. You know, it's the divinely approved method or, or something. Well, well, no. I mean, look at the sermons in the New Testament. At least look at the synopses of sermons. Um, there are varieties of, of ways of, of preaching a text. It's quite possible, for example, the book of Hebrews is really an extended sermon on Psalm 110. Um, and yet then you see other kinds of approaches in, in Acts, at least reflections of other kinds of approaches. So my interest is in seeing people, uh, you know, instructed, you know, from an exegetical point of view in the morning, and then some sort of uh, of catechetical pattern in the evening. And perhaps almost as important is to have the minister and, and then also parents catechizing children just the way Calvin did. I tell my students, you know, you can call yourself a rancher or a CEO or whatever kind of nonsense you you want to call yourself as a pastor, uh, but you're, you're a shepherd, you're a pastor, and if John Calvin had time to catechize children, so do you. So yes. I don't want to hear this stuff about I'm too busy, I'm, you know, I'm running a large organization. If you're doing that stuff, you're not doing the ministry. Mm-hmm. If, if that's getting in the way of catechizing children, and, and, uh, and then parents have to follow that up. Uh, and, you know, again, the, the church used to have a pattern for this. It's uh, Dorothy Sayers talks about parrot, pert, and poet. And uh, if we would begin teaching our children scripture and catechism when they're in the parent stage, you know, th- ages three, four, five, six, seven, in, you know, and beyond, kids are like sponges. They love that stuff. They'll memorize uh, that stuff. 
and uh, it will stay with them for a long time. They'll stay with them for the rest of their lives. Uh, we explain it to them when they uh, uh, when they get to the uh, pert stage, the smart aleck stage, and, and um, which can last longer in some children than in others. And, and then uh, and then the poet stage, you know, when they begin to realize, hey, these things represent transcendent realities, and uh, they begin to. You know, now they're ready to come to the table and say, you know, this is for me. Now, Scott, is this book going to be out in November? Well, yeah, I'm a Calvinist, and uh, <laughs> I know that if anything can go wrong, it will. But uh, that's the plan. And I will say, you know, uh, Lord willing, Lord permitting, um, things seem to be going along well. And uh, the publisher, PNR, uh, tells me that um, that they expect it to be out in time for the fall conference season at uh, AAR and ETS. Excellent. Well, we thank Very you good. for coming on and joining us. We got a little fuzz. Yeah. I'm going to have to try to clean up, but uh, um, hopefully we'll get we'll get your voice out there, and I'm sure many people are going to be interested in listening. So thanks for joining us. Jim had to you leave. He, uh, he had to get back to a session at GA. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, that, that's fine. Thank you, man. Yes, yeah, so thanks, I want Scott. to... Uh, conclude our discussion today and we want to thank everybody for listening but of course yeah. we'll be back next week uh, but until then you can visit castlechurch.org of course you can read our notes you can download our bibliography you can also read Jeff's latest article uh, he wrote a few years ago uh, on Abraham Kuyper's apologetic well yeah that's like 10 years ago but anyway it's up there and you can download that article it's really interesting uh, you can also see our different feeds and subscribe to everything that we produce. Uh, and you can also give us feedback. You go to castlechurch.org slash contact. But we want to thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center.